Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Seven Investing Podcast. Pretty exciting if you're on video. You can see a preview. It's not just Christoph and myself this week. We're joined by a very special guest, Krishna Bahawani. Krishna is a framework coach and an investor from India, but crucially, he's also the founder of Indians Invest Globally a community dedicated to investors with global portfolios. I actually met Krishna about a year ago because I guested in one of his clubhouse discussions with his Indians Invest Globally colleagues. Um, I think you've got over 1,200 members now. Yeah. Um, and then the other reason we wanted to chat to you today is you're also part of the core team at Delhi Investors Association, which is an investor body with over 20,000 investors as members. You've been a speaker at the 2022 Investing Accelerator Summit. You've also spoken at public and private investor meets across the country. And basically, you're just a passionate believer in the India growth story with a keen eye on global opportunities. And I think that is going to be fascinating for seven investing podcast listeners and YouTube watchers, not just today, but in two weeks time. We're breaking this into two episodes so we can have a really deep, rich conversation about investing in India. I'm pumped. Christoph, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm so excited. I've, uh, I studied India back in, back in the college days, and it, I think it's just one of the most fascinating places in the world. And obviously, for reasons that will probably become very clear, the very best place to look toward investing opportunities going forward, given uh, what's happening with China. In other words, a decline there with a rise in India. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I can't wait for this conversation. Well, Krishna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Luke. I'm so happy to be here. So I think I mentioned we're going to probably split this into two episodes because we, we don't want to constrain the conversation we're going to have. Today, we'll focus more on kind of the big picture, India's demographics, what the local retail investor mindset's like, and also think a little bit about the impact of Indian government policies on the investing market. And then when we come back in two weeks time, we're going to pick up on some topics such as what's it like to be an investor in India kind of challenges faced. Maybe really exciting one I'm very interested in is what's the future of investing in India? And then big teaser for part two, Krishna's going to share some interesting investing sectors in India, hot topics, hot areas and sectors to look at. Uh, if you're considering, as an international investor, investing in this exciting market. Well, I'm looking forward to part one. Why don't we uh, crack on though and get started? And maybe just to kick us off, you could just tell us a bit more about yourself, Krishna, and also Indians invest globally. Sure. I became an investor in 2016. Um, you know, I used to be a journalist before this, uh, and that exposed me to a lot of information on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, seeing news go through the newsroom, you're sort of always up to date on what's happening. Um, and, you know, that gives you unique insight into the country. And it was then that I decided to start saving up and investing for myself. I mean, I couldn't have imagined that I'd be sitting here, you know, uh, a couple of years <laughs> later. Uh, but it's uh, especially since I have no traditional background in finance. Um, like a lot of, uh, you know, other Indians, I pursued IT um, uh, right up until I dropped out to, uh, to join a newspaper at first as an intern. And, and then I was given my own department and uh, I set up my own section within the paper. 
it's been a long journey since then and uh, you know as i've invested i've grown as an investor and now i know that this is a huge part of my identity and this is a huge part of you know uh, what i want to do as far as indians invest globally goes um, you know i've always been somebody who's um, had a global mindset and uh, uh, right around during the pandemic uh, what happened was the cost to invest internationally went down substantially in india there was an influx of different companies allowing you um, you know to be able to invest abroad sort of like the robin hood moment in the us uh, we had it here with international investing and did, did that have all of the downside and complexity of robin hood specifically you know they didn't build a great name for themselves with some of their policies and their approach to the way they navigated markets yeah i think that there were a bunch of complexities here as well because uh, generally you know international investing or um, you know doing anything that involves complex flows of money in india is generally a cumbersome process a lot of the um, you know while the cost came down um, some of the investing uh, as in the transfer of funds still had to be done manually and the fees are pretty high you know uh, in terms of transferring your funds uh, internationally especially when you look at it uh, compared to uh, what people would want to be able to invest so while we did get like uh, zero brokerage and close to zero brokerage kind of accounts um, transferring to the us still had all of its uh, traditional fees so while it did become something that you know was a lot more accessible than it used to be before it still wasn't something that the everyday investor could participate in it's still a very like selected group of higher net worth individuals who could uh, you know um, go and explore international investment so that the market's mostly made up of all these rich ex it graduates who are uh, plowing their earnings back into stock yeah market. i mean i mean the markets are pretty diverse and and they're also pretty young um you know because when when you look at in uh, the indian stock market as a whole uh i think we have about 110 million investors uh right now in india uh this is in the indian stock market and i think it would be about 140 million uh in the mutual fund industry uh so you have more people in india investing in mutual funds than in direct stocks or etfs uh etfs are far less popular here than um mutual funds are um so but you know this 110 million number um a decade ago would have been something like 20 30 million so it's it's um gone up dramatically i think even the last year number um uh, november to november which would be 2021 to 2022 i think was uh 34% plus kind of growth in terms of the number of um investment accounts which we call demat account so it's a young market in that you you get a pretty diverse sort of investor profile um another very interesting fact about india is roughly only 5% of indian assets are in equity um so you have 3.5% in cash and 4.8% roughly in equity so it's it's still a very new asset class for indians i think gold is like three times that and i know property is 10 times that i've got a couple of very close indian friends who are sort of uh, british born indians but we always joke with my friend dunya 
that her her riches are in gold and she's you know sink a safe into a garage and kind of bury it physically she's a bit of a doomer when it comes to what's happening in the world gold is popular culturally as an investment that's changing with uh, with this current generation like the average age of an indian in india right now is uh, about 28 years i'm about a year and a half two years older than that a lot of the investors coming in right now are are my age uh, and uh, their disposable incomes are rising um you know they're also the uh, the people that make up the majority of the workforce so disposable incomes are rising it's it's all coming together um into a, a really interesting picture just to like simplify the demographics of india you could look at it as um you know three or five different indias um because um when you look at the top 20% of india uh you're you're looking at families making around $15,000 uh which would be your uh, your top 20% and um, you know the the top 2% or top 1% would be like double that and you have various sections of the of society which are uh sort of like different indias because india's per capita income is about $2,000 over the next 7 or 8 years that's going to more than double to about $5000 Krishna I had I an no idea, idea because you start talking about demographics I just want to set the table up on the in the broad picture just very very broad what I want to say is that from an investing standpoint there's an adage that says look where the demographics are the demographics rule everything and what that means in a very general broad sense is that when you have an aging population or a declining population you basically have fewer workers or less capital in the system as an easy example take a look at japan and uh in the 80s 90s it, there was a rise in its uh technological know-how but as the population aged and people were having fewer and fewer kids you look at it now and there is this there's this in a sense decline in in uh opportunity same kind of things is seeming to happen to China that the population is getting older meanwhile as i'm sure krishna you'll you'll explain with great depth and and uh first hand experience india is the opposite situation you have a very young population that is booming and so from the investment standpoint that's kind of like just a great place to start demographics Uh yeah absolutely like the average age of um of an indian right now is 28 and a half years um and you know if you, if like you look back to your own life that's probably the time where you really started to make money you know <laughs> uh you, you had put in all the time the work the energy into sort of building yourself and that was sort of the time where you started to make money um also what's really interesting is um the demographics in india in terms of the uh, the working age population hasn't even peaked yet it's the best that it's ever been right now but it's expected that it would peak uh, around 2030 2031 with about 69 to 70% of the population being in the workforce which is an absolutely staggering number this is a population that's hungry to consume they've lived on $2000 per capita income uh which if you take by purchasing power parity terms is equivalent to like $9000 US in terms of living standard and you know as this this amount 
sort of doubles uh, a little more than doubles in the next um, seven or eight years that's a huge amount of like disposable income that's going to come online and that's also going to dictate the investing opportunities in india in a really really big way um it, you know it, just to like uh, paint you guys a little bit of a picture of the last 50 years of the indian market the really big winners have been you know uh, consumer staple companies export companies and infrastructure companies with the exception of one gold retailer gold jewelry retailer like we joked about how gold is a big uh, aspect uh, you know in india um three times the amount of money that's in equity is in gold um that is a that is the only sort of uh, you know segment of uh, consumer di- discretionary that's actually done really well over the last 50 years which means the whole gamut is of discretionary consumption is still open uh, for indians you know um, to be able to spend on and i think that makes it a really really interesting economy india like the us is is a 60% consumer driven economy unlike china so a lot of the growth is going to be driven by people's consumption and i suppose as people become richer and you have this emerging middle class um would you say that there'll be more focus or opportunity for consumer discretionary firms and like a almost startup ecosystem absolutely along with the middle class the wealthy population in india is going to 5x in the next 7 years which is insane like when you think about it uh, the number of people earning uh, the equivalent of um, you know 35000 dollars um, is going to 5x in the next 7 years i'm not exactly sure if this is on purchasing power parity terms or if it's on uh, you know um, just taking gdp as it is but either way that's like a huge uh, boost to the upper echelon of consumption and you can see that in like um the prices of, of certain hotel rooms uh in india um you know if you wanted a hotel room right now in in mumbai uh, at one of the top 3 hotels it would cost you about 400 to 450 500 $500 us for a standard room which is what you would expect in in new york or you know um la or san francisco india is a very very big country and therefore you know you can have like almost like many small countries and small economies within it so while the middle class story is the huge story you also got a parallel affluent class story sort of playing out and um uh, and i suppose it's a tech savvy demographic you know this sort of younger cohort of a folk and particularly you know like a, a lot of wealthy people coming out of the IT sector that's a huge industry in india do you see technology firms as benefiting perhaps to a greater extent than um some of their peers in more traditional industries um it, it's it's a little complicated um you know because um the amount of competition and disruption in the tech firms is much much higher um so you know as an investor or um or you know as an entrepreneur you have to take that into consideration um the competition in the more capital intensive the more traditional firms um you know you would say is comparatively lesser um 
and the scope for disruption is a lot lesser versus what it would be in um, you know uh, in the new age tech companies uh, just to give you an illustration um, you know i'm not invested in any of the high tech growth uh, stocks in india while that forms the primary segment of my international portfolio uh, because of how high the disruption is and you know you could spend a really really long time building something up and then forget about like competition disrupting you the government might disrupt you you know <laughs> in india right now the government is is building something called the india stack uh, which is a sort of like a software layer to the entire country so you've got tech based authentication of people which is the aadhar system if you want any government benefits you know you want to apply for any government schemes government services uh, you just use this aadhar uh, system which is a lot like the us social security number but this is a digital platform that connects to all sorts of other things like banking investing uh, and so on uh, just to give you an example and uh, you can tell me how it is in the us or in the uk but uh, you know you can open today an investment account using this india stack in 30 minutes your entire authentication paperwork uh, screening approval is all done online and you are ready to go in 30 minutes when i talk to my friends abroad they say that's like that's insane you know it's it's very impressive i i think the uk yeah. are somewhat advanced maybe you couldn't do it in 30 minutes but you could probably get there in under a day but go on christoph yeah. tell us about how archaic the systems are in the us <laughs> yeah. oh they're fantastic i love waiting at the dmv line uh for 4 hours to get uh, my license corrected that inverted my first and last name <laughs> so so yeah. that makes yeah that makes the us seem like a third world country hey krishna could i rewind or maybe it's a, a segue the mm. thing that is seems most impressive to me right now in terms of tech is the fact that uh india according to my my research is not, has now approximately 750 million users uh online which is a huge huge shift in just the last couple of years and to put that into perspective that's you have china at about a billion India 750 million and then the US is somewhere around uh 270 million so it's not even close and i guess the question to you is that kind of world in which only a few years separates nearly a billion people from being not online to online that has to have repercussions that are not accounted for yet in the global economy how do you think of that yeah absolutely so uh, we had something in india known as the geo moment um which was a moment uh, uh you know uh, the telecom industry was sort of old and archaic you know very little disruption um a gigabyte of data costed like i don't know 10 15 um at that time and for most of india it was like not possible uh, to access and india in that way leapfrogged the the computer generation and uh, i think a vast majority of the users that came online were mobile first and all of this happened because um, 
Reliance, which is one of India's largest uh, companies, decided to get into the uh, the telecom space. Um, and just for the read, uh, listeners to just clarify, um, there are two uh, Reliance companies. There used to be a Reliance Communications, uh, which was in the telecom space, but that's sort of shut down now. They're both owned by two different brothers. Um, uh, the other brother decided to get into the telecom space, uh, and he was the one who was into you know uh, oil and petrochemicals before that, and uh, made this absolutely insane sort of capex layout, and then came to the market. And today we have the cheapest data cost in in the world, and we're unlikely to be like uh, challenged in in that segment because he took data and he practically made it free. You know, like in, from $15 a gigabyte today, an average data plan on, on postpaid would give you like two gigabytes a day and would cost $15 a month. So yeah. like that's the the level of productivity. So we've had a 60 times increase in how far our money goes in terms of buying data. And I suppose a small aside on that topic, one of our colleagues, Anoban, was recently tweeting about the iPhone moment that seems to be happening in India now, where I think two Apple stores have recently been opened and there seems to be a huge demand for Apple's products. I guess, you know, the the handsets themselves going hand in hand with this incredibly low data costs. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, they sort of go hand in hand. And, um, you know, like I said, India is a, is a con uh, high consumption country. You've got a lot of uh, use, users who are, actually in the affluent segment also um, you know because uh, like you pointed out a lot of the people who are earning the money are in the tech industry and therefore this would be something that they would uh, enjoy spending their money on um, this and real estate in bangalore which you can see in the prices of real estate in bangalore i expect that by the end of this decade we should be i think even morgan stanley said we should be somewhere around 900 million people that are online. So we're starting to sort of touch on the topic of how investors think and their kind of backgrounds, I suppose, the sort of retail investor mindset. So maybe just to sort of broaden that question out a bit, and maybe we can start attacking it from a few different angles. You've told us a bit about who retail investors typically are. What's, what's people's kind of risk appetite and the types of investing preferences they might have and what sort of decision-making processes do, do people use when they're trying to determine where or how to invest um so uh, we could we could bucket the people in two different buckets to make it simpler okay so you've got the the population that's earning and investing um and you've got uh, essentially people who have assets and they're transferring them to equity um okay so these are the two broad buckets because uh, like i said the average age of an indian is 28 years so a lot of those people are earning their money right now um, jobs are becoming increasingly more well-paying as remote work takes off around the world. Uh, India is uniquely poised to take advantage of that because a lot of Indians speak English. And, you know, they speak English fluently. They understand English well. So they can take, um, you know, international jobs in the way that other East Asian countries may not have been able to. Uh, they're also well-versed with outsourcing, you know, as India is a big hub for outsourcing uh, IT talent, customer service, things like that. Uh, so they are uh, making more money than they used to before because it's still very, very, very cheap for uh, you know 
international companies to outsource to India. And these investors, they have a higher risk appetite because they're younger, they're earlier on in their careers and they're less worried about, you know, where they're going to end up because they have fewer responsibilities. And at the same time, you have this other segment of society, which was traditionally living off bank deposits um, because, you know, bank deposits in India used to have a really high interest rate. Even today, you can get around like seven, seven and a half, eight percent on a bank deposit. Um, so, you know, uh, you have some part of that population that's coming into the equity market, realizing that, you know, uh, you can make a higher return and you pay a lower tax rate uh, on your equity investments as opposed to your bank deposits. Uh, your effective tax rate could be triple on your bank deposits as opposed to your equity investments. Um, so that's driving a lot of investing there. And um, that's a very different kind of investing, uh, very risk averse, uh, primarily investing in uh, consumer staples and banks, which, which are considered safer investments uh, in India. So you've got uh, two different sort of groups of people simultaneously entering the market for the first time. And, and that is a very high interest rate you can get in a bank account. Is that is that a recent phenomena because of sort of inflation and, and those sort of macro events or has it always been quite high? So it's always been quite high. It did go a bit lower, you know, during 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, we reached about 5%, I think. I don't think it ever dipped below 5 So 5 would be 5 to 6%. Uh, as a range, depending on which bank you sort of go for. Uh, now that's between 7 and 8%. So the lowest we've ever had, I think, is between 5 and 6%. It's really fascinating when you, I mean, if you just think about, say, the S&P or some other big indexes, if you're just investing in indexes, you might expect to get 8 to 10% as an average year after year. If you could almost get that on a risk-free basis in a bank account, why would you invest at all? Absolutely. So that's that's what kept pe- pe- uh, a lot of people away from it. Um, also, you know, we had a, a lot of the older generation experience this uh, thing called the Arshad Mehta moment in, in, in India, where there was a big sort of stock market manipulation incident that happened in the 90s. And that scared an entire generation out of the market. Uh, because I think after the aftermath of that whole thing, led to a 50% drop in the index, which for a lot of people would be like, okay, we're never entering this space again, you know, Um, especially if they were leveraged, you know, if they didn't understand what they were doing well. So I think that kept a lot of people away from the market. 2008 kept a lot of people away from the market. Um, And of course, interest rates were great outside. So there wasn't a reason to come into the market per se. I would also want to add one more thing, which is the, the awareness around real returns has increased. So, you know, while you might be able to get 5-6% on a bank deposit, uh, inflation adjusted, that could be 0%. So we have 4-6% to 6% is our, uh, what the RBI targets, like, uh, you know, the Fed targets 2%. We target between 4-6% to 6% in India. Um, so the understanding of, you know, uh, real returns is started to increase in India. And therefore, uh, I think that's also influencing 
uh, equity participation. Yeah, and to tie that in with this uh, connection of so many hundreds of millions of people to the internet as technology gets more advanced and all the apps and the you know iphone i guess becomes not commoditized but normalized the ease of access to all this stuff that you know brokerages like robin hood brought brought to bear uh in a population that is young and comfortable with that technology it seems to me just a massive, massive setup for people being comfortable with investing in a way that, that, that you know, going from zero to 100, basically, in the span of a couple of years. Does that sound accurate? Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I wouldn't change a word. Okay. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it, can, can I set up uh, the topic of governmental policy? And mm -hmm. I, I wanted to do that by thinking comparatively uh, China compared to India. And I'm very ignorant uh, about most of this stuff. So please correct any generalizations. But the way mm -hmm. I sort of think about it now is that you have China in terms of population staggering over the rest of the world. And it changed the world. Uh, when China basically started to become a developed country the entire world's global system and manufacturing processes changed. And that came with uh, really serious downsides like climate uh, change and, and pollution and all of that. But leave that aside for a second. But what's interesting about China is that we know they've walled themselves off predominantly. One, the great firewall of the internet. They, 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 most Chinese people are not participating in a global conversation. And from the English-speaking perspective, Chinese is also a big barrier in terms of language and culture. Compared to India, now the world's most populous country, has policies that are almost the opposite of China's. There, and this is where you may might provide some nuance for us. But one, there's no there's no firewall, and there's English speakers. It just seems like India is the new giant that is that is not yet a giant, but the barriers that the previous giant has set up simply do not exist. Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of ways, um, I think India is open uh, to collaboration, uh, and you can see that in the in the way that government policies are are happening. India is very happy for you know international companies to come in to work here to collaborate with indian companies to grow of course they want you know india to grow as well uh, and uh, you know indian companies to grow as well but they're, they're not like in any way closed off to international companies to international investment and you can see that in foreign direct investment limits which have been opened up and they're allowing a lot of um, you know foreign investment in the country and I think the government is constantly proactively thinking about in, in areas like technology, electronics, uh, defense, how can we collaborate with our European peers, our American peers, and, um, you know, sort of grow together, which is, again, you know, a very, very different approach uh, from the approach taken in China. Um, like, I was looking at the sectors that are closed off uh, you know, to foreign investing. Um, 
or to foreign direct investment uh, and i could only find two which are like um, you know minuscule um, the gambling sector and the cigarette sector uh, that's it you know everything else is like open uh, to international investing of course there are different there are different limits depending on how sensitive those sectors are the limits are lower um, you know uh, the more critical the infrastructure gets for the country but you know uh, stuff that's not so critical you know in terms of uh, the security or functioning of the country those are those those are a lot more open um, for foreign collaboration so in that way it's a very different economy Hey, Krishna, you use the phrase the government, you know, can you can you tell us just a little bit uh, more about Narendra Modi? My understanding is that he's extremely popular, more uh, more popular than maybe most political leaders. And I guess everything starts at the top. Can you give us some color about his his vision for the country and what you see him doing and and how he's shaping government? Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, just to give you. Uh, another staggering stat, you know, um, I think we were, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what the rank was, but we were over, um, you know, a hundredth rank in the ease of doing business ranking. And um, ever since he came, you know, he, he made it his mission to sort of improve the ease of doing business ranking. Today, we're about 63rd. Um, I'm not sure what the exact jump would be, but I think it's like 70 spaces in the time of seven years or something, which is which is crazy. You know, like the kind of ambition um, that he has for the country is, is really, really strong. I think one of the things that inspires the Indian people, Indian people are really hardworking people because, you know, as you know, the, the per capita income being where it is and the, the sure size of the population. And India is a labor surplus country. So people generally have a working hard ethic. So when they see their prime minister, you know, who first of all was, you know, has risen from uh, absolute poverty, you know, he was a tea seller. Uh, so tea seller to prime minister in itself is a huge, huge, huge story. From there, uh, he's also someone who's really, really hardworking. Um, he's constantly putting in effort uh, and people can see that effort on the ground. Arguably, the only comparable prime minister to him in the history of India was the prime minister that founded India, you know, the, the first prime minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if during his tenure, um, he overtakes um, Jawaharlal Nehru in terms of his popularity. Uh, yeah, so he's someone who leads uh, from the front. Um, he's very unafraid, um, you know, to take bold decisions. Uh, India was also a country that was traditionally uh, plagued by corruption, uh, where you would have, you know, politicians bringing in family members uh, and things like that. And, you know, uh, India being a socialist economy up to like 1991, uh, they used to hand out certain things to family members and concerns of family members. So uh, a, a big thing that aids Narendra Modi's image is that he has no one to do that for. He has no family outside of, you know, um, his aging mother. Uh, I mean, he had a wife, but he sort of separated with her earlier on. And he doesn't have anyone to, you know, sort of be sort of corrupt for. 
and that aids his image a lot again in india because they know that you know who's he going to steal the money for right and that that makes people like a lot more enthusiastic he's a very 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 popular uh, leader and uh, i i i don't see his popularity diminishing at all interesting could you think we could go back and double click on that um comment about the ease of doing business index because that is a you know significant improvement H- how what kind of policies have the government enacted is it like sort of taking out bureaucracy or what's, what other things have happened yeah so uh, that, uh india stack again is a is a big component in that so because the aadhar system exists uh, you know uh, in the middle he also went on this drive uh, as far as like sanitation and opening bank accounts go and um, I, again i'm not sure about what the exact stats are but like i think uh, women bank accounts went from something like 40% to 90% um, you know what the india stack does is it allows people who previously didn't have an identification document um, you know to be able to get uh, an identification document easily to be able to use that to open a bank account really quickly um you know all direct benefit transfers don't happen through checks they all happen electronically you know you qualify for various schemes using the india stack so it's a very um you know um pinpointed effort to eliminating middlemen and also i think uh, you know culture starts at the top and um sending out a very strong message that you know uh, we want efficiency to just give you an example you know india again had a really bad reputation with its politicians uh, but today you know our, our railway minister is a warwick graduate if you told someone in india 10 years ago that's going to happen <laughs> they would have been like that that's impossible you know that, that and it's a lateral entry into politics he's not a career politician but there's there's so much political power and capital that the prime minister has built up that today he can go out and bring someone into the government uh give them a cabinet level position and they can really do the work um arguably one of india's most popular politicians right now uh mr jay shankar the external affairs minister you know he, he was not a career politician uh he was brought in from the civil services uh in a lateral entry you know today i don't think if he stands uh for an election there would be any doubt in anyone's mind to like that he's going to win but to be able to bring such people in takes a lot of power and uh, political capital which i think he's spending really well and and i guess a, a little tongue in cheek but but genuinely on behalf of all british people if i could thank you and your neighbors in pakistan because your people who are of indian origin are now running the uk running scotland <laughs> uh, our, our fantastic uh, mayor of london as well so uh you're helping rescue us from this absolute uh, disaster we've created for ourselves politically over the last year or so. Oh yeah, it is interesting from the US centric perspective that uh there's some US companies you might have heard of them that have uh uh Indian CEOs at the top. Little pebbles like like Google <laughs> and Microsoft. Yeah. Uh but I also uh I keep coming back to this difference between China and India. and it seems like there's just a more collaborative uh 
emergent possibility between the U.S. and India than there could ever possibly be with the U.S. and China, in part because of the vastly different way that they think of themselves in, in, in terms of government structure. That China will actually set up espionage uh, and um, totalitarian ways of controlling everything as in an adversarial nature. We know this with the TikTok saga, right? Compared yeah. to India seems to be inviting collaboration. And if I reverse engineer things, and I start with someone like Tim Cook, who probably knows the world's manufacturing cadence better than anyone on the planet, and he's now uh, devoting so much time and effort into establishing a real genuine presence in India. I believe some Apple stores were recently opened. It started with 1% of iPhones being made. Now I think it's up to 7% with a goal of maybe 25%. All of a sudden, India seems like a legit partner. And you have this thing called India America, right? Where, where um, it just makes so much sense to me. Am I missing something? No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. But there, there are a few crucial government policies as well that have, uh, you know, played a role. Uh, as an investor, personally, uh, you know, the one that excites me the most uh, is this thing called the production-linked incentive scheme. Um, okay, and uh, it, it caters to specific sectors like automobiles, uh, specialty chemicals, pharmaceuticals, electronics, um, IT hardware, which uh, India wants to become stronger in. Um, and what the government is doing is they're giving a 5% uh, incentive to uh, you know companies. If they hit certain benchmarks in terms of efficiency and scale, they need to hit these benchmarks in terms of volumes in a time-bound manner. And they can get up to, you know, 5% uh, of a benefit. The government is investing uh, in terms of their outlay about $25.9 billion in this, which means that in five to six years, they will produce, um, you know, manufacturing in these key targeted sectors of about $520 billion. The government is extremely pinpointed in, in the way that they, they work. Uh, you know, you can see it in, in this policy. And this is built to create an ecosystem for all of these things. So it becomes a lot easier for an Apple to move manufacturing here if every other electronic component is getting that incentive to be able to develop uh, so that we can um, bridge the gap between what a China has uh, and what we need in terms of economies of scale uh, to be able to be... Um, a valid contributor to the global market. Fascinating, Krishna. Um, hey, I think we're coming up on time for our first part of this conversation, but we'd love to pick up with you in two weeks' time. I hope our listeners can hold their breath. <laughs> so we've covered some interesting topics today, but when we come back, probably the, the, the headline part of this conversation for me, really to understand a bit more about the future of investing in India. And I think you're going to share some interesting segments and sectors 
that you think are particularly interesting right now in the country. Um, really looking forward to getting to that conversation. Um, but for now, let's bring part one to a close, say a quick thank you. Um, if our listeners for part one would like to read more of your work or perhaps join Indians Invest Globally, where could they find you on the internet? Uh, I think the best place is Twitter, at the rate uh, Bahirwani Krish, which is uh, B-A-H-I-R-W-A-N-I-K-R-I-S-H. Superb, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, awesome. well, on behalf of Christoph and myself, thanks so much for your time in this first part of our fascinating conversation.